Welcome to the New Jersey Department of Education's Bureau of Bilingual ESL Education Podcast. I'm Ken Bond, the State Program Coordinator and your host. In this podcast, I have bite-sized conversations about English language learner education with leaders in the field. During this episode, I'll be talking with Jessica Levin, a staff attorney for the Education Law Center, and Elizabeth D.J. Franks, a consultant for Yamame and the sociopolitical concerns representative for NJTSOL and JBE. This is part one of a two-episode series in which we will be diving into the topic of advocating for English language learners, also called ELLs. Jessica and Elizabeth, thanks for being my guests on today's episode. This is my first episode with multiple guests, so I'm excited to try something a little bit different. You both do such great work in this area, so I'm really thrilled to be able to learn from you along with those who are listening. Well, Ken, thank you so much for this opportunity because advocacy is something that I personally feel is so important. Uh, So I really do appreciate the opportunity to talk on this topic. Yes, thank you, Ken. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm honored to be sitting with BJ, who's an advocate that I've admired very much. Goodness. (laughs) So I wanted to start off with this question. Why is solidarity with ELLs and immigrant communities important to you at a personal level? Well, language skills are an amazing asset, as you both know, Um, and learning languages has opened a lot of doors for me, academically, culturally, making new friends, and now being able to represent Spanish-speaking families in my job as an education attorney. So it's important to me to do my part to make sure that we view multilingualism as an asset rather than viewing ELLs as coming to school with a deficit. Um, And as a lawyer, it's important to me to stand in solidarity with ELL and immigrant communities because there are relatively few attorneys who have a focus or a specialty in the laws that affect ELLs. But the law is an extremely powerful tool in the struggle for ELL educational rights throughout the years. So when I received a fellowship after law school called the Skadden Fellowship, which is a great program that funds lawyers so they can work in the public interest, I wanted to focus my work on ELL advocacy. That's a, a great question, Ken. Uh, it really made, gave me pause. I had to really think about that. I've been involved uh, with English learners my whole career, and uh, I hesitate to tell you how long, but it was really when Lau versus Nickel was first passed way back in 1974. I was in college at the time and had a bilingual minor, and because of Lau versus Nickel, schools started to address the needs of English language learners. So. Uh, I truly feel I was a pioneer working in schools with this particular population. Uh, But once I started working in the field, I found how important it was to advocate because so many people did not know, did not understand this population, did not understand what we were trying to do uh, with bilingual and ESL education. So uh, it just became a part of my job to to advocate. I oftentimes had to become the voice for my, my students and their families. Uh, in the school system. So that really, I think, is what has driven me to, to really advocate and speak up. So can you tell me about an example of something that happened recently in relation to ELL advocacy that you have been working to address? So kind of an emergent issue that, that's come up that you've really been passionate about or, or working on. And BJ, do you want to take this one first? (laughs) (laughs) I hope I leave enough time for Jessica. (laughs) Actually, just yesterday, I had the opportunity to meet with the Association of uh, Teacher Educators in New Jersey. 
because something uh, as NJTSL and JBE has really set up a platform and uh, of issues. And one of the issues that we realize is the shortage of bilingual educators. Uh, we have a mandate because of our, our laws here in New Jersey that the districts must comply with and have a bilingual program if there are 20 or more students that speak the same language. And yet many districts struggle with finding qualified teachers for those programs. And we were able to have a, start a conversation with them. How can we work together uh, to recruit candidates for bilingual education? Uh, what kinds of things can we advocate for from a financial situation, looking for grants uh, that would help higher ed institutions really look at getting programs together, uh, looking at district and higher ed partnerships. How can we start that? Looking at our pool of Seal of Biliteracy recipients who graduate from high school and how can we uh, talk to those students and encourage them, perhaps, since they're halfway there with the Seal of Biliteracy to pursue educational careers. In addition, we also spoke to them about the idea of our population has been growing. I mean, the NJDE, WDOE has posted that information that since 2010, we've had over 17,000 more English learners in our, in our schools, and that over 80% of the districts have some type of program for English language learners. So we wanted to, again, have that conversation with the teacher educators to talk about the importance of training all teachers, not just ESL bilingual teachers, but math teachers, science teachers, elementary education teachers, because chances are if they work in New Jersey, they will have an English language learner at some point in time. Um, the other uh, issue that we are very, um, well, actually we had a, what I would like to say and, and acknowledge the Department of Education with the ESA, ASSA Stakeholders Committee that we were invited to the table. And that really was such a, a wonderful thing to be at the table when decisions were being made. And can you t talk a little bit about that committee, what that experience was, and what the committee did? Right, so the New Jersey Department of Education last year convened a stakeholders committee and invited uh, representatives from many of the various groups throughout the state, uh, special education, social and emotional learning, um, health and phys ed, all of the different content areas, and, and really, personally, I feel like valued our input about what was going forward with the ESSA accountability measures, and we feel that the new accountability measure certainly addresses the ELL population in a much more reasonable way. You know, the fact that we're looking at growth on PARC rather than just proficiency is something that will definitely benefit our subgroup. Uh, the fact that the, EL, the ELL growth, the target growth on, on English language development is a part of the overall accountability for schools who have more than 20 students is also something that I think uh, really talks to having all educators involved and collaborating. Uh, the last thing, and I'm, I'm sure I'm hoping Jessica will also address, is the whole idea of the Park ELA 10 graduation requirement. Students need to be at an English language proficiency level of four or five to even come close to hitting proficiency on a standardized test. And many of our students arrive in ninth grade. So to just have ninth and 10th grade and then they have to take a graduation requirement is just not enough time uh, for these students. I know the Education Law Center just recently published a, a brief and for the ELL population, only 3% of English language learners passed both Park ELA 10 and Algebra 1. So that's a true concern 
uh, if they become graduation requirements for this population. Thank you for sharing. Jessica, how about you? What are some policy issues that have been on your radar lately? Um, well, like BJ, I want to mention three. There are a lot that we're excited about, but I'm, I'm really glad that BJ mentioned the ones that she did, um, and particularly the effort to find more teachers who are qualified and ready to teach in bilingual programs because we've seen that where districts are struggling to meet that requirement, a lot of times it's a staffing issue. And so I'm really grateful for the advocacy um, that she and her colleagues are doing on that. Um, so first, I want to say that our state has wonderful legal protections for or ELLs in our state law, but districts don't always adhere to them for various reasons. So for several years, I and my ELC colleagues have advocated to address common problems that we see, like ensuring that ELLs receive those language acquisition programs, whether it's ESL classes, bilingual education, that they're entitled to in their district, making sure that parents receive translation and interpretation services in special education and other areas that they need to meaningfully participate in their child's education. So we work on those common problems, um, both at a policy level, in representing individual families, in giving advice to families and to parents in doing trainings um, for various groups so that they know what those requirements are and can better meet them. So that's part of our ongoing advocacy day to day. We've also advocated for changes in our state bilingual education code to make it even stronger. Uh, and I'm very happy to say that the Department of Education has taken some of those recommendations, put them in the code, and we've been able to work together very well on that. Next is an area that BJ mentioned where Education Law Center is advocating for ELLs and students statewide right now having to do with the state's new graduation assessment requirements. A few years ago, as many listeners probably know, the state's graduation exam changed and the rules and regulations surrounding that change, replacing the old HESPA test with park assessments as the main graduation uh, assessment requirement. As BJ also mentioned, unfortunately last year only 3% of ELLs fulfilled the graduation requirement by passing PARC tests in both ELA and math. So obviously a very low and troubling number um, and so it's very important to ELC and a lot of advocates around the state that those legal and policy issues that are raised by these new graduation rules are addressed and ensuring that students have multiple pathways for graduation which has historically been very important to a lot of groups including being very important to ELLs and, get, and allowing them um, to fulfill that graduation assessment requirement. And the last thing I'll mention, um, which is an issue that affects ELLs and English-speaking students, is making sure that schools are safe and welcoming um, for all students in light of increased anxiety, particularly for immigrant students and families. Education Law Center and other partner organizations have advocated for New Jersey public schools to be declared safe havens and do things like protecting students' personally identifiable information to the maximum extent that's permitted by under the current laws. We've also asked DOE to do things like providing Q&A resources that districts can and give to parents on these issues, making sure professional development on these issues is available to educators. And we're excited to be working on all these advocacy issues with new leadership in the state and the DOE. We're excited to work uh, with new leaders and we're hopeful that these issues are going to get uh, even more attention and the attention that they deserve. Paulo Freire said that washing one's hands of the conflict between the powerful and the powerless means to side with the powerful and not be neutral. 
What is one practical way that educators can step further away from their position of neutrality to stand with minoritized immigrant students and those families that are also part of that community? Whoever wants to go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll jump in. So that's a, a really thought-provoking quote. And what it made me think of was a line from the Supreme Court case, Lau versus Nichols, that BJ mentioned at the beginning of our talk, which was a 1974 Supreme Court case. That's personally my favorite Supreme Court case. Everyone has to, every lawyer has to have one. Um, and in that case, the court concluded that California schools that were failing to provide any supplemental English language instruction to Chinese-speaking students violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the court gave the following quote. It said, there is no equality of treatment merely by providing students with the same facilities, textbooks, teachers, and curriculum. For students who do not understand English are effectively foreclosed from any meaningful education. So what this means is that washing your hands of the challenges faced by ELLs so if you simply provide them with the same services that every other student is getting, does not make you neutral. Schools are obligated to provide ELLs under the law, and I would say because it's the right thing to do, um, to provide ELLs with language assistance programs so that they can overcome any language barriers to their participation in the educational program. And if that doesn't happen, then ELLs will be marginalized. So ensuring that we empower ELLs and provide them with, in New Jersey, ESL classes, bilingual education programs or bilingual alternatives is one very practical and tangible way that we decide as a community of educators and education advocates not to stand just with the often more powerful language majority community, um, but to empower ELLs to access their education. That's great. BJ? Yeah, I uh, agree about the importance of, of this quote, and especially at this time. Uh, and I just want to... Um, kind of piggyback on something that Jessica just said about Lau versus Nickel. Many times uh, in my work in professional development, we actually use a, a meme that I'm sure many people have seen with the three students, uh, people standing outside of a baseball game. And I think I've seen that before. Is that the one where there's a very tall person mm -hmm. watching a baseball game, doesn't need any, any help get, kind of getting over a fence, and then a smaller... Uh, person who needs a little bit more help to see the game is that is that right the one that exactly yeah okay. and then the little guy who can't see the game right. even standing on one box right so he needs an extra he needs an additional needs an extra box right okay, right great and I often refer to Lau versus Nickel on that because uh, unfortunately when Common Core first came into New Jersey uh, many districts interpreted that. Uh, the standards to be, oh, well, everyone has to have the same books, the same curriculum, the same everything, so that students could meet that standard number 10 of uh, reading grade level material by the end of the year. And so I often use Lau versus Nickel in that, in that visual to really say, if we do that, we are foreclosing some students from a meaningful education. Because if we give everyone the same, then our English learners will not have enough to be able to access the, the content standards. And ultimately, that's what we want. We want them to have access to the content standards. So what I always talk to teachers about is we do advocacy, as I stated before, all the time. It's really the advocacy that you do at the school level. So even if you speak with a colleague about what additional services the child may need or support or how they may adjust a lesson, you know, that's advocacy. That's um, taking some power into your hands and speaking up for students. 
And, you know, I also talking to administrators, you know, talking to the, the powers that be. How can we make sure that we're supporting and validating and, and providing the, the needed services? As an organization, NJTSL and JBE, we try to stay on top of everything uh, that's going on. So perhaps you may not be able to or you feel limited in the capacity in your school setting, but at least we are offering some advice and uh, providing some places where you can write letters or send emails to, to let legislators know or let the State Board of Education members know uh, what are the things that concern us and, and again, uh, what we like to advocate to uh, suggest. Those are all great points. And that theme of advocating in the school is a really important one. I do have a question for both of you, though, for teachers who are advocating for English language learners in their context and might need advice when it comes to their job security because that might be at risk when they are advocating to people who hold hiring and firing <laughs> uh, in, in their hands and are able to make those staffing decisions. And you know, if those are the people that they're advocating to, that can put them in sometimes a precarious position. So what advice would you have to those teachers who are trying to think through very complex issues politically inside of their schools? Well, I'll just be very brief, and then I want to throw this one more to BJ. I won't get into legal advice for educators, and I want to defer to BJ as an, someone who's much closer to educators day-to-day and what they're dealing with in schools. But if an educator has concerns about their job, I know they have resources available through their union or the DOE. The one point I want to underscore is that so much of the advocacy we can do for ELLs is simply making sure that our schools know about and comply with the excellent laws that we have on the books that are settled. And so learning more about those legal requirements, educating your colleagues, encouraging people to learn more about that is important, a great first step in making everybody an advocate for ELLs. Thank you, Jessica. So <laughs> I would never, ever advise someone to do anything that would jeopardize their job <laughs> security. We all have to live. We have families that we have to take care of, and that always has to be our first, first priority. Each district is unique, and I think that, yes, we need to hold people's feet to the fire of compliance, but that's not always the easiest thing to do from political aspects. So it's really a matter of trying to step back and find out who are the power brokers in your district. You know, we can't say it's this person or that person, again, because it changes and it varies uh, among districts, but to really find out who those, who those influencers are. And it's really important, I think, to build allies. So to find general edu education colleagues who may be empathetic or sympathetic, that you could uh, help to become that ally. So you're not the lone voice. I, I think it's really difficult to be the lone voice, not to say that I know we have teachers who are the lone voice in their districts. Um, but if you can find colleagues that share some of your uh, ideas or understand what it is that you're trying to advocate for, I think that's important to, to not be alone and to, to find those, those colleagues. And then to just always uh, try to inform and educate. You want to start conversations. I, I think there's been so much, um, I want to say vitriol in conversations in these days that it's, it's hard to hear another side. And I think we all have to do our part on how can we have conversations. 
And, and one of the things is to start that conversation is what is in the best interest of kids. You know, we all know that there's compliance, but compliance, we've always said, is almost the minimal of what's needed, right? We can always go beyond compliance to doing what's best. We don't, we don't always need the hammer, you know? <laughs> we can really use it with uh, building those friendships and, and having those conversations uh, about what's best for students. Again, if teachers feel very um, limited in what they can do in the schools, we do a lot of advocacy, and that's something that uh, you know, we can do by proxy, right? That by being a member of our organization and staying informed about what's going on. At least they're educated, they know what's happening. Um, if we have letter writing campaigns, they can participate in that. So I think there are ways that you can still advocate even when you feel that your hands are tied in your, in your local situation. I remember when I was a teacher, you know, that was something that I would do when they asked for public input on things like the NCLB waiver process. I remember writing a letter for that to, you know, the New Jersey Department of Education where I work now, but that was a way that I felt like I could add my voice to larger discourses, larger policy discourses, and really advocate for the things that I saw in my school and my classroom. And I think, Ken, that is so powerful. I mean, that is always something that, that I encourage teachers to do. Tell your story. Tell the story of your students. That's what I think we can all relate to, right? So what's happening in your classroom and, and how does this policy or this law really impact the, the students, right, the children? It's important for everybody, not just lawyers or professional advocates who have that as their day job, but parents and educators and everybody who's a stakeholder, which is everybody, um, to participate in that. And there are some very powerful days um, at NJDOE with people giving public comment, and you can also submit written comments. So it's important that everybody knows about those opportunities. This is where we're going to stop for part one of this two-part interview. Please tune in to the next episode to hear the rest of our conversation. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Also, please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. It helps new listeners find the show. If you would like more information about ESL and bilingual education in New Jersey, please visit our website at www.nj.gov forward slash education forward slash bilingual.